This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Obviously, the big story here in Ontario is, uh, well, two-pronged, obviously, that uh, striking uh, faculty at uh, community colleges rejected a, a contract offer by an overwhelming majority. That was announced yesterday. And not too long after that, the provincial government announced back-to-work legislation that they hoped was going to go through bang, 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 first, second, third reading, and uh, be enacted and have the students back into the classroom by Monday. However, that was blocked by the NDP, who said that, no, they're protecting workers' rights and there's legislation, yada, 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 yada. So it hasn't happened. So what's going on from the political standpoint today is the Ontario legislature is sitting on Friday. They don't usually do that at Queen's Park, but they're doing it today, and uh, the government is going to reintroduce the back-to-work legislation. Uh, the Progressive Conservative Party and Patrick Brown say, yes, they're going to support this. The NDP clearly aren't. Uh, some are suggesting this is really just a, a political battle now. And as we've been articulating for the last couple of weeks, my sympathies are right now with the students. As far as the colleges are concerned, as far as the teachers are concerned, a pox on both your houses. Because there, there's just an intransigence that's going on here, and the students are the ones that are getting stuck in the middle on this, which I guess is why the government decided to move. Now, we're going to talk about that with you a little in just a couple of minutes. I want to open the lines up and give you an opportunity to weigh in on the back-to-work legislation, whether you think the government's done the right thing here and whether or not this is going to be effective. But in the meantime, I want to find out what's going to happen because of this. I mean, however you feel about the back-to-work legislation, and I know I'm going to get an earful from you on that in just a few minutes, I want to find out how this is going to impact the students because that should be our number one priority at this stage. Ron McCurley, the president of Mohawk College, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to try to lay the groundwork for what could happen on this. Ron, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks very much, Bill. I appreciate being on the show. Listen, I don't want to get into the negotiations or the lack thereof as they're going on right now. I, I, I think the concern that we should be having right now is what's going to happen going forward. I mean, what's going to happen at Queen's Park is going to happen, whether it happens this afternoon or a couple of days from now. This is obviously going to pass, which means that the students are going to go back in the classroom. The faculty is going to have to go back. Talk to us about how the colleges prepare and what's going to happen for the students. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so we have contingency plans now, uh, which uh, would see the faculty, uh, assuming that the legislation passes through the weekend, back in class on Monday. That means the students would be uh, back in Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, all of which would be communicated probably uh, Sunday, uh, Monday at the latest. So um, we have extended classes to uh, December 22nd. Uh, we have shortened the Christmas break, unfortunately, starting again in January the 2nd. Uh, and we will continue classes to get everything in and uh, well into January, which means we also delay the start of the second semester. All right, let me let me put that in context, Ron. You, now, first of all, you're going to go till the 22nd. When was the school the semester supposed to end? Uh, so a week before that would be uh, would be normal. So so, the, so there's an extra week before Christmas. When were you going to resume classes in 2018? Uh, probably a week later than we are. All right, so you've shaved two weeks off, well, off the time off, as we were, uh, to try to accommodate classrooms. Okay, move on from there. I just wanted to get some context as to what was going to happen and now what is going to happen. But, Bill, when we started back up in January, it would have been for the second semester. When we start back up in January now, we'll still be in the fall semester. We'll still be finishing that off. So we'll add a couple weeks of classes uh, into January to allow us to get the rest of the teaching in and, and then schedule exams and so on. 
So that's going to go through January, and uh, do I assume that takes the whole month of January? No, not quite. I think we can get done by halfway through January. All right. Is there going to be a break, more time off for the students between the first semester and the beginning of second semester? Uh, it'll be very small, uh, a very small amount, but there will still be a winter reading week. We think that's necessary, so that'll still happen, and there'll be a, a break in the second semester. What about the concern that I've heard from students and, and student associations about uh, about lost time and about trying to cram this stuff in here? And it's it's one thing to articulate, uh, Ron, to say, okay, we can accommodate the curriculum within this time frame with some alterations. You've already outlined what those are going to be. But the other concern here is what kind of pressure is this going to put on students? I mean, there's a learning curve. Uh, there's there's time that assignments need to be done. There's, a, in some cases, a special consultation that has to go on between students and teachers. Uh, does that fly out the window right now because there just isn't time, as one student told me? Uh, we do have extra supports that we'll have available for students, uh, everything from uh, peer tutoring to uh, extra counseling and support uh, to, to uh, try to assist them. It is more challenging. I mean, anytime you start and stop something and then restart it, absolutely, that is not the best, uh, best outcome, and we, we, we totally get that. But there are students that need to, uh, to graduate. There, there are many hundreds of them that were going to graduate at the end of December. So we need to continue now to allow that to happen. They won't graduate by the end of December, but as quickly into January as possible so that they can then uh, go into the work world and start their jobs. There are people that are queued up um, as well to finish at the end of uh, April. Uh, it would have been mid-April, and that'll be the end of April, likely. So that will allow them to do that. So, you know, the other option was to uh, to end this term now, essentially, wait till January and restart it all. The problem with that is it, it just puts everybody even further behind and makes it more challenging. So, uh, so we've decided instead to try to add more supports in to help students to to uh, help them uh, make it through. Are other colleges going to follow a similar schedule? Yes. So everybody's going to be on the same playing field. I mean, in other words, uh, for those who may be graduating and obviously lo looking for employment in, in the job force and whatever their capacity and whatever their, their endeavor is, Ron, uh, it's not as if, well, such and such a college uh, is, is going to accelerate. The, those kids are going to graduate. You know, because there's a very competitive aspect to this, as we all know, but it looks like everybody's going to be on the same page. All 24 colleges we expect will follow almost e exactly the same schedule. Okay. What about those uh, possible employers? I mean, one of the things about community colleges that has worked so well in the last number of years is the collaboration between business industry and the colleges themselves. We, we've talked about co-op courses, Ron. You know, we've talked about that at great length, of course, on this show. Uh, and some of these people are job ready. Some of them are already working right now. As this has gone on into the fifth week right now, uh, what are we hearing from those partners, from those people in business and in industry that uh, that are opening positions right now? Are they holding those positions for these students? Yes, most of them are. We've been uh, in touch with all of our partners, including our academic partners like McMaster, who have been wonderful to work with, and our industry partners as well. They've been terrific. Uh, they, they understand the situation, and they still have the need, Bill. That's a great thing. They're still looking for uh, these co-op opportunities because they are looking to hire our graduates. So our goal is to get, uh, and, and, and they are cooperating fully to get as many of those uh, positions filled, even though they're going to be delayed in some cases. What's the atmosphere going to be like? I mean, when they return to work, obviously there are some people, I guess, in, on staff that are not happy with the outcome right now. 
Uh, we've heard from the union leadership at the provincial level anyway, Smokey Thomas, that said they will honor the back-to-work legislation. Uh, can you move on from this, or is there going to be some, some transition that has to happen here? Well, well, there's no doubt there's frustration on, on both sides that we couldn't get a, a negotiated settlement. But, you know, we have amazing faculty. I have huge respect for them. And, and in talking to them on the line and in talking to them through emails as a strike has gone on, uh, they have huge concern for our students. And they, they really do want most of them to get back into classes to work with our students and to be able to get them through and get them uh, to their credentials. So. You know, they are professionals, and um, I just have great hope and belief that we will be able to work together and that that uh, we'll be able to get back focused on the students again. I don't don't want to talk about the money because that's part of the negotiation. But there was one aspect when we talked with the union about this, and and I think we've had this conversation at the beginning of this uh, work stoppage, Ron, some weeks ago, you and I. Uh, and that's this idea of academic freedom, and that's apparently still a, such a sore point right now, and a major in in many people's minds, the major issue that had not been resolved uh, during these negotiations right now. Uh, is there flexibility there? Is there some wiggle room to try to find something that's going to please both sides here? Because clearly, the the faculty I don't feel as if they're getting enough input into this, and uh, obviously, the college doesn't want to totally relinquish this right now. Where's the middle ground here? I think we need to we need to take that out of uh, bargaining, Bill, and I, I think we do need to have that discussion. And I certainly have got a better appreciation of uh, what faculty is looking for through this process. Um, uh, it, it, it's still not as far as I think we can go. We we are a college; we're not a university. There's no tenure track here. Uh, they're they're not required to be PhDs. They're not required to publish. Um, there are so many things that are different from universities, and they're asking for a level of freedom that even universities don't have. And we, we don't do that here. We, we have a very cooperative, inclusive model that, that allows employers to speak into um, uh, program content and how it works, and the government, and graduates, and students. Uh, obviously, faculty have the most important voice, but it's not the only voice. And I, I think we need to take that discussion. I need to figure out how do I get closer to what they're looking for, because clearly uh, the vote told us they're not happy with uh, what we put on the table. And and obviously, these are our uh, the faculty are. Uh, we need to work together. We need to find a way uh, to work forward uh, together and to sort out these kind of issues. Can you do that on a province-wide basis? Because uh, some are suggesting that, that perhaps one of the reasons why this reached such a stalemate uh, was that, the, that this is really a, a situation where there's province-wide bargaining going on right now. But in many instances, individual colleges have individual circumstances right now, and it's very difficult to find a one-size-fits-all. You know, I think that is that does make it challenging. Uh, the needs of the colleges are very different. Um, uh, th- their ability to uh, to change the the speed at which they can change and adapt is very different. Um, their financial situation very different, uh, so on and so on. So, you know, I do think that uh, you know you end up negotiating to the lowest common denominator because there are so many differences in the system. And it, but but is so that fair? I mean, for instance, they talked about ratio of full time to part time, and I, I again I don't want to get into negotiating here, but. I do know this much, uh, that, that, that ratio varies from college to college. 
It does, and we're actually above what they would have negotiated had they they been successful or we've been successful to getting to that point. I, I think the more important question is, what kind of system does the government, who essentially is funding the college sector, what do they want? And if they want uh, less precarious, more full-time jobs, that's actually easier for us to manage. That's great. But, but then we have to have the money to support that. And one of the things that I agree with fully with the faculty is we are 10 out of 10 in terms of uh, per capita funding coming from the provincial government. Is that, you know, is that the kind of model we want going forward? Um, we, have a, we, are, uh, we are mandated by legislation that we have to balance the books every year. And th that means we have to make tough decisions in terms of programs, in terms of uh, full-time, part-time mix of faculty, all sorts of issues that drive costs. So we're happy to move towards more full-time as long as, uh, you know, our parent, the provincial government, is willing to fund that. The uh, government legislation, as I understand it, I haven't seen it. I'm just reading some of the highlights that uh, were proposed, and they haven't even tabled it yet, so that might even change. But they're talking about setting up a, uh, a, a, a committee that's going to look into this rather contentious issue right now, uh, which I assume is going to be made up of members on both sides right now. Is, is, is that a way to, to a, a feasible end here? Absolutely. That is a great outcome, and uh, I'm so thankful that uh, I don't know how it came about, whether the provincial government offered it to take that off the table, perhaps. But that is a great outcome of this uh, this set of negotiations, because that, that really is where the discussion needs to happen. And there's a commitment in there that they'll move quickly, uh, that they will take a funding recommendation to cabinet. Um, we have been uh, starved for funding for uh, for more than a decade. And and so this would be great if we can get uh, some positive traction in terms of moving forward uh, with the provincial government. Well, we'll see how things are going to go at Queen's Park today. But, I mean, obviously, whether it's going to be a, a delay by another day or two is, is, is really the only factor that's at play here right now. We know that at some point next week, I guess, uh, students are going to be, and teachers and faculty are going to be back in the classroom. Is that a fair assumption, Ron? Absolutely. The premier is pretty angry at us, so she's going to get this done. So, uh uh, yes, uh, and, and the good news is we're going to have students back next week for sure. Um, so I'm very, uh, very pleased about that. Uh, I'm sure uh, whether it gets done uh, today or, or Saturday or Sunday, uh, the back-to-work legislation will get passed. I have no doubt about that. Uh, the Conservatives are supporting the Liberals in that, and uh, that means we can get faculty back in on Monday and hopefully students uh, Tuesday uh, and or Wednesday. Ron McCurley, President of Mohawk College. Ron, thanks for this. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I remember talking with Ryan McGreal from Raise the Hammer about this a week or so ago because he posted a picture. Actually, I've seen a number of them on social media in the last little while about uh, cars and vehicles that are parked in bike lanes. Now, bike lanes, uh, is I, I get that. They're a rather contentious issue for some people here in the city, but the city does have a policy of moving towards more bike lanes. Uh, I think it's a great idea. Uh, not everybody seems to, though, and some people some seem to want to pretend as if these things don't exist. Uh, and what happens now, and what we're starting to find out now, is there seems to be uh, a disconnect between the existing bylaws in the city and bike lanes when it comes to issues like parking. Are you legally allowed to stop your vehicle inside a bike lane? This is not a Hamilton-only issue, but boy, it's, it's causing an awful lot of angst for not a lot of people in the city right now. Let me bring Jason Farr into the conversation, uh, the uh, city councilor for downtown Ward 2. 
to uh, join us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Counselor Farr, how are you this morning, sir? Very good, Bill. How are you doing? Excellent. Uh, there are bike lanes all over the place, and that's that's the good news. A laugh a lot of them, of course, in the downtown. Uh, the most recent contentious one, I guess, is on Bay Street, which is uh, right smack dab in your ward again, Jay. Uh, talk to us about the existing bylaws. I'm sure you're getting phone calls about this now. Uh, yeah, well, you know, you mentioned social media. Um, more action on social media than I've ever seen uh, with respect to this particular issue uh, than phone calls. That's certainly the case. And, uh, yeah, we reached uh, over uh, 200 kilometers of bike lanes when we completed that uh, partnership project with the province and the Bay Street lane that uh, you had mentioned. And uh, it may be uh, when you spoke with Ryan last week, it was the picture, the now famous social media photo of the postie parked um, in the protected piece of yeah. that bike lane yeah. uh, right before we started the uh, press conference with the, the minister, the cabinet minister, uh, and uh, Ted McNeekin, our MPP, who helped with the funding, our mayor, and, you know, 100 people or so ready that, to cut the ribbon. And that, that really right kills behind a, us. Really kills the photo op, doesn't it? <laughs> it was the worst timing, but in a way, maybe it was the best, because uh, to your point, we, we have... Uh, currently now, and like other municipalities, are rather dated to bylaw. And so uh, you're talking about pre-amalgamation on who can park in a bike lane and who cannot. And uh, right now in our bylaw, there's a long list of who can. And we feel, and we are already working on it, it's time to uh, tweak this, given that movement since pre-amalgamation, since 2000, uh, toward uh, you know the cycling master plan, fulfilling those goals. That came five years after uh, 2005 years after amalgamation and towards those goals of uh, giving people options to get out of their car and move around this city. I mean, this is, I mentioned a second ago, not a, a unique Hamilton problem here. I, mm-hmm. I, I know the city of Toronto enacted similar legislation, uh, I, I think it was about yeah, October, it was just about five, six weeks ago anyway. And that very night on, on Global News, uh, at uh, 5.30, they had a picture of uh, two or three of the main drags there, and there are the bike lanes, and there are Canada Post trucks and UPS trucks and everybody else blocking it. And cyclists are outraged when this happens. They figure, wait a second, you've got dedicated lines, finally, for cyclists, but you're allowing these utility vehicles, or these service vehicles, I guess is the phrase that some of them use, to block them. And then where do the cyclists go? Up on the sidewalk? Well, we don't, obviously, you can't, according to the MTO. You exactly. You can't ride your bike on the sidewalk, so you now are... Um, you know, taking uh, the route that uh, the cars are supposed to be on, which is obviously trying to get uh, into that one lane or two lanes of uh, automobile traffic to get around it. So there are ways in which um, uh, folks can uh, work with the city. I'm sure we'll come up with a bylaw that hopefully uh, speaks to a compromise. James Buffett uh, is our manager in control of uh, making the tweaks that eventually, eventually Bill will come to council, and he's a very reasonable guy. Uh, but, you know, for example, work vehicles, if, if, if someone's doing a job that's going to take all day or a few days and it's a, a, a busy time for commuters, both cyclists and motorists, there's, there's permits you can get. Uh, you can set some pylon tracks around just as we do most of the time, not all the time. It's another issue altogether when we have construction and we have to close the sidewalk. If a lane needs to be redirected, uh, we can issue permits to make that happen. On, on delivery vehicles, there's a lot of cases where we're seeing uh, deliveries obviously happen. Postal deliveries particularly get in the social media campaign uh, 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 a lot of the time, but they're exempt right now with the current bylaw, uh, where, you know, you can walk a little further and not um, disrupt the particular paths that you're disrupt- disrupting currently. On the other side of it, and when we talk about having good employees like James working on a compromise, 
there are sometimes needs, and you can think about darts buses or, or um, you know, um, you know, any kind of uh, drop-off or pickup of uh, disabled passengers. You want to make that the most convenient and the least uh, obstructed uh, obstructions to get that uh, drop-off and pickup happening. And so there may be cases where we are going to need to uh, continue to allow for a, a quick drop-off or pickup in those cases. The, the problem we've got here, and, and you mentioned Canada Post, and, and as I say, service vehicles, and, and I'm going to include in the broader context uh, courier services as well, uh, because there's a lot more of that stuff going on these days. There's a lot of it more downtown. More. And uh, uh, God bless their souls, but I mean, they park wherever they darn well want. Uh, you know, they'll block intersections, they'll block parking spaces, they're certainly blocking bike lanes right now. Mm-hmm. So, so we've got a couple of different aspects to this discussion here. One of them is enforcement, of course. Second is knowledge of the law, and I guess maybe that should actually supersede enforcement because they should know what they're doing in the third place. In the first, but in the other element of this, there's a safety issue here. We're encouraging cycling, and and then all of a sudden we're allowing these vehicles to park in the cycling lanes, which is basically it, it's telling the cyclist, "Glad you're doing it. Glad you're cycling. We got a bay, lane here for you, but if there's a, a vehicle in the way, you're going to have to move into traffic again." Or right on the sidewalk, and neither is the optimum option, quite obviously. The less parking and bike lanes we can have with service vehicles, delivery vehicles, obviously personal vehicles, you're not supposed to be doing it now, even with the dated bylaw we have. Uh, drop-offs, pickups, the better, quite obviously, Bill. But you're, you're, you're right. Other municipalities have been tackling this uh, for some time. Toronto is at the point where the posties will not be able to park in bike lines. They will be getting fined. Uh, and uh, taking not an aggressive approach, but a, a reasonable approach and understanding that there's there's lots of players here and we need to find the compromise. And we'll, we'll, we'll do the same. We'll have the same uh, tweaked bylaw coming our way. We're, we're in the interim, quite obviously, and as you know, Bill, we do have a, a dedicated uh, bylaw enforcement officer on a bike who is tweeting regularly uh, from an educational standpoint, letting people know, uh, making people aware of the current pre-amalgamation bylaw, probably tweeting now and again that we're working on amending that bylaw, making it more uh, current, what with the you know hundreds of kilometers of bike lanes we now have in the city, and uh, doing a pretty good job at it. I mean, he's 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 part of this social media campaign in a more you know a concise fashion. He's focusing on education at this point so that 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 kind of stuff helps you and i talking about it now also helps i think there's a portion of people out there in their automobiles that maybe just aren't aware you know we have thousands and thousands of bylaws they've always stopped at the side of the road put their cautions on and in many cases now where there's bike lanes obviously they can't do that well yeah i don't know if they don't know i just if they're trying to plead blind ignorance here but i mean a bike lane is a bike lane i i gotta ask you though a very elementary question and 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 i Listen, I'm supportive of bike lanes. I think this is a great idea. I don't even ride a bike, but I understand that, you know, it's, it's environmentally conscious. It's, it's health. There's a whole lot of issues here, and, and that's great. But does staff do enough homework on this when they decide where they're going to implement some of these things? And, and you know, I know in the paper today they talked about the story at, uh, at St. John's, the, uh, evangelical, the Evangelist uh, Church, which, of course, is that church everybody sees when they go at Locke and Charlton there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bike lane, which is on Charlton now, essentially eliminates parking. That's a church. Uh, they need parking from time to time. I, the fam- One of the more famous stories I can remember is when Bob Rutina was the counselor for your area in Ward 2. And uh, he was, of course, living uh, over uh, in, you know, of course, in the, in the Corktown neighborhood. Uh, walking to City Hall, and he's walking along Hunter Street by the GO station there and sees city staff there, uh, and he says, what are you doing? He says, we're putting a bike lane here on the left-hand side. 
And he says, that's going to eliminate all the parking on the, the TH. Yeah, he says, who told you to do this? And he went he went, went down to City Hall and found out about this and realized all the taxi cabs, everybody else who drops people off and picks people up, was going to be eliminated. And and I, I'm wondering sometimes if the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing when they decide to implement some of these policies. Well, it is a cycling master plan. The previous councillor would have been around, I believe, when we uh, implemented the plan. Certainly, as councillors, it's uh, there's a lot of master plans, and you got to keep up. But does anybody at that table, when you're deciding on this, say, "Okay, let's think about the implications of this"? Well, absolutely. And and, and before we do installations, we obviously uh, engineering our 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 cycling manager Daryl Bender, traffic management staff, or transportation demand management staff. And public works people up and down the street. You're taking a look. You're 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 mapping it out. You're working with consultants in some cases on some of the bigger projects like Cannon, like Bay with the province. And you're absolutely in advance uh, noting those areas that may be an issue, uh, corresponding and engaging. We had a town hall on the Bay Street bike lane. It was well attended, and 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 the residents themselves offered input even after. The, the map for Bay Street, as an example, was put out there into the public. Folks from the Hamilton Cycling Committee and others, uh, very avid cyclers, made some recommendations, and we tweaked what the, the consultants in the province and the city came up with. So we, we do do a lot of homework, absolutely after the fact. I mean, when you think of Herkimer Charlton, certainly uh, a councillor representing his uh, commuting residents from Ward 8 made a few suggestions. Some of those suggestions after the fact were implemented. We don't we don't go in, install, and then walk away. We've made tweaks. We've made tweaks recently on Bay Street. And there are areas as well where we're losing. Bay Street's a really good example of, of something that worked very well, could have worked a little better. But for the most part, there was a two-block stretch where we affected seven parking spots that caused, for me, the most... Uh, let's, I'm not going to call it angst between myself and the, the seven or eight residents or, or residential units that this affected in a two-block stretch. But it, it costs some uh, time in, in consideration and uh, negotiation and conversation for many, many hours and that led to nothing. Like We couldn't resolve it. It, it. The only resolve, because it's such a tight stretch between Barton and Stewart, Bill, I'm talking about, yeah. that we would have to eliminate uh, that two-block stretch of bike lane, which defeats the purpose because it connects to the other 190 kilometers of bike lane. So not having that two-block stretch connect would make no sense. So we're working still on finding options for their visitor parking. For the most part, each and every one has at least a one-car drive, which is helpful and uh, make, making my mission short-term a little bit easier and trying to help them expedite for those who want to expand their driveways as well. And and I get that. And 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 again, there's a whole series of debates and discussions that have on, gone on. I, I know when Brian McCaddy was on council and they were implementing the, the bike lane on Dundurn at that time, and, and our good friend Ray Paquette from Ray's Boathouse had some concerns because obviously oh, there's yeah. no parking lot there. And you know, there's a school zone, so there's limited parking to begin with, and that was going to eliminate parking. And uh, he felt initially it, he, it, as if his voice wasn't being heard. I think they finally found a compromise, and Ray's doing fine as far as I know, and, and the bike lane's there, and everybody seems to be happy. But I don't know sometimes if these discussions actually happen. And they do. For instance, for the folks at St. John's Church there t- that we talked about at Charlton and Lock Street, I mean, you know, the weddings, funerals, things like that, on-street parking is essential in situations like that. The bike lane precludes that. Did they sit down and talk to the pastor there and say, said, here's what we're going to do. Uh, can you give us some input into this? I, I know they're having that discussion now, but that's after the fact. No, I know we've had, we, you know, along the route, we 
we we do have the engagement ahead of time uh, in, in in the last installment and in the significant one on Bay Street. We had that uh, town hall. Like I said, lots of folks showed up. There there there's always going to be impacts when you change the existing conditions. Absolutely, uh, there are always going to be some element of uh, the community that will never be satisfied with that change, and it's perfectly understandable. But uh, when you look at the issue as a whole understand and hopefully appreciate why we're doing this uh for the most part people come around and 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 whether it takes two or three weeks to adjust on your daily commute or you live right out front of a bike lane what i see personally in ward and you're you're using the st john's ward uh ward one example but in ward two people come around and start to really appreciate it and investments start to happen as well so we think we're doing the right thing you can always do better when it comes to pre-consult, absolutely, we're not the best at it in the city of Hamilton. We're not the worst at it either, uh, but we try very hard, and, and we don't willy-nilly put these things together. There is a cycling master plan, and we do try to appreciate that plan and, and take that plan into account each and every time we, we make these installations. But when it comes to some of these service vehicles, whether it's Canada Post, uh, you know, the, the couriers, whatever the case might be, and there's a long right. list right now of cars that are exempted, vehicles that are exempted by this. Yes. Uh, do you narrow that down? Do you call the herd here a little bit, or do you simply say uh, it's off limits to everybody? Oh, no, uh, it won't be off limits to everybody. Uh, I can't see ever saying to Darts, you can't uh, quickly go in and drop off and make it as convenient as possible for those riders. Uh, but I, I could definitely see us pricing down that list. It, it won't be as long as it was pre-amalgamation, where we didn't even come close to having the amount of bike lanes we have now. So, so I absolutely see us reducing uh, the amount of allowances, Bill, I don't know to what extent, but I can tell you, we, again, we have James, we have some very good people on staff working with people on this. And when it comes to, and, that, and it ultimately will probably come to Public Works Committee, there's an opportunity, too, for those cab drivers who are allowed to drop off and pick up now to come and speak if they end up being eliminated from being exempt. And, and others who are getting maybe too used to parking in the bike lanes because they understand the bylaw and know that now they can, but once that bylaw gets tweaked, there'll, there'll be a public meeting and there'll be opportunities for people, uh, you know, to speak to the issue one side of it and, of course, the other side of it as well, Bill. Look forward to the public consultation and our conversation mm-hmm. on that as it happens. Jay, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend, Bill. Thank you for you having too. me. You too. Councilor Jason Farr, of course, for Ward 2 downtown. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We're talking about bikes and bike lanes, etc., but uh, I want to spend some time talking about roads and trucking. Trucking is, uh, as we've talked about many times in this program, an essential part of the Ontario, the Canadian, I guess the North American economy. We need to move goods back and forth. And yes, we need to improve rail transportation and other forms of transportation, but uh, trucking is always and probably always will be uh, a major part of that. So when we have incidents like we had on Highway 400, uh, a couple of weeks ago, with a massive multi-car or multi-vehicle accident, uh, it obviously concerns us. Obviously, the loss of life and, and and property damage, but but also the idea of keeping our roadways open and uh, making trucking efficient. Well, in response to what happened, the Ontario Trucking Association has now issued a five-point action plan. They uh, have uh, formulated to try to improve road safety. Joining us to talk about this is Stephen Laskowski from the Ontario Trucking Association, as he joins us on the Bill Keller Show. Stephen, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Bill. Thanks for that intro. And uh, well, listen, let's let's get into what's going on here. And and, and again, I'm, I'm just sincere in the preamble. I mean, trucking is such an important part of this, uh, and and especially in the southern Ontario economy, we see them on the highways all the time. 
Uh, and that's that's commerce that we see happening like this. And we've talked about how these things can happen. And uh, safety is such a big part of this. I mean, we tend to forget about the fact that, I mean, these are huge vehicles, uh, you know, weighing tons, uh, carrying human beings and carrying other important cargo like this. And safety has to be an important part of this. And I know that the Ontario Trucking Association has always had that as, as a priority. But in light of what's happened in, in, with that accident and some others in the last little while, you've, uh, I guess, kind of revamped and, and come up with some new proposals? You know, no, Bill, I, I guess, it's, first of all, thanks for that uh, introduction. I couldn't have said it better myself in terms of the importance of the economy and, and trucking. Uh, but with that comes a responsibility. You know, we're one of the few sectors that shares the workplace with the, with the public. Uh, so our member companies for close to 100 years have realized that. And so we've internalized safety, both from a driver and a mechanical vehicle perspective. And with regards to what's happened in the last 10 to 12 days, really what our five-point action plan is, is a collection of our activities that have been ongoing. Um, The one thing we take great pride and our board takes great pride in is we're not reactive. We're a proactive organization. So much of what you read in the five-point action plan is actually, actually reflects some of the ongoing discussions that we were having with government. So what we did, we collectively did as an organization, is, is take a look at, here's what we're doing. Uh, can we do more? Are there opportunities to do more? And that's what that document reflects. And I, I don't want to suggest for a second uh, that, that there's a void here. In other words, boy, the boy, the safety measures are pretty lax with the uh, tr- trucking association and and the relationships between provinces and, and enforcement agencies, specifically, I guess, in Ontario, the OPP, because that's been ongoing for quite some time. And I know those discussions have been going on. And and I guess step one here, when you talk about your action plan, Stephen, is is really uh, let's let's enforce the rules that we already have. Absolutely, and. For the vast majority of trucking companies, they don't need that reminder. No different than, than, than society. Uh, we have laws on the books, not for the majority of the people, but the few who need laws over their heads to keep people in line. No different than our sector. The vast majority, and the statistics bear it out, of trucking companies, safety is job one, whether it's mechanical or, or driver safety. But unfortunately, there is a percentage in our industry that don't approach safety in that manner. And so what we're saying is, we know the OPP and the MTO have limited resources. So let's dedicate those resources to go after those drivers, those commercial drivers, and those companies that don't make safety job one. Is there a problem, because there are some large companies, obviously, that we all know, and we see them on the the highways all the time, but there are also independent operators right now, Stephen. Are are there two levels of of enforcement here? I mean, the the large companies, as you say, usually have safety plans in place. Uh, And I'm not trying to point the finger necessarily at independent operators like this, but, I mean, is it more difficult to enforce with with those sorts? No, actually, you know, I wouldn't characterize it as a size of operation. It's really a mentality. It's the business commitment and your commitment, whether you have two trucks or 200 trucks. So I, I wouldn't liken it to a big versus small issue. It's, re- it's really uh, an approach, a business approach. And I think that for, for the most part, as I said, whether they're small or large, that's incorporated. So then how do you then go after and identify those companies that need that? And there's a series of of 
of policies in place already, whether they're at the OPP and primarily at the Ministry of Transportation that does that. But now what we're utilizing this opportunity is, okay, how can we even get more effective? How can we go to the facilities, the trucking companies that are not audited? How can we make sure that those companies are doing the right thing? And, and is that working? Do you feel comfortable that, that, that there is an effective policy and an effective uh, enforcement of that policy? A, I think we have effective policies in place. Now we need to learn how to identify better those companies that need reminding. There is a commitment on all parts, both the, at the Ministry of Transportation and the OPP, to get unsafe operators off the road. So now how can we do even a better job at identifying those carriers? There is, there is, it's a waste of resources to audit and inspect trucking trucks and trucking companies that we already know are doing a good job. So how can we then, those companies still need oversight, don't get me wrong, but then how can we dedicate and direct enforcement more towards those carriers that need it? And that, that's been a challenge. And I think the last 10 to 12 days has brought uh, more attention to our industry and as, a, as we say in our action plan, this is an opportunity to revi- revisit how we do things. It's produced the safest highways in North America for both passenger and commercial motor vehicles. We know that. So we are at a level of excellence. So now the, the public and people from the media are saying, okay, how can you get better? So that, that's what our action plan addresses. It's, it's two fronts. One, how we can get better in terms of with carriers who are already doing a good job But then the second part is, how can we identify, and it's a tougher part, how can we identify better those carriers that aren't doing their job? A couple of things, and let's talk about, first of all, mechanical uh, and some concerns. And and we remember, Stephen, a few years ago, of course, the the, the tragic propensity of of tires flying off 18-wheelers, and and there were some fatalities that resulted a terrible circumstance like that. Uh, how did the association respond to that and, 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 and look at that and say, how can we do a better job? Because we don't hear that much anymore. So clearly something was done to rectify that. Well, that, that's an excellent example. What the industry did at the time is we took a look at the problem. We get to understand, we researched the problem. And then we identified training, mandatory training requirements for tire installers. We changed the law in the books for penalties for prior installers and also for trucking companies that failed to inspect. What do we have? Well, that didn't make the problem go away, uh, but it, it certainly reduced the issue. Anytime you're dealing w- with mechanics and people, you're always going to have an element of error, but we've significantly reduced that. So now let's bring forward to the issues of the last 10 days. And primarily, what well, I think all sides have agreed that not not only the last 10 days, but the biggest problem confronting us from a road safety perspective, whether it's commercial or passenger vehicles, is distracted driving. So what the action plan looks at is how can technology deal with that? What types of technologies are available? What are the impediments to mandating that technology? And then we get on the education side. What are the types of tools that we need to do, whether it's licensing, licensing, or post-licensing training that's required to deal with distracted driving. It's a big problem in society, not for co- just for commercial drivers, but passengers. And we just can't say, well, it's a problem. We need to develop a plan to deal with it. And that's what we're 
we're saying to the OPP and to the MTO and to Transport Canada and to OEMs and to academics, let's all work together. Let's put our heads together. There's a lot of smart and dedicated people out there. And let's not just talk about the problem. Let's solve it. Because, I mean, I've heard stories, and this is all anecdotal, of course, but some people in the industry that, are, that have contacted me uh, in the last couple of weeks especially, and they'll, they'll talk about, let's face it, truckers who, long-haul truckers, as opposed to somebody who's doing quick deliveries, you mm-hmm. know, from, from one part of the city to another or something. But but obviously, you're right. There's texting, there's talking on cell phones, uh, both of which are illegal, but it's still going on. Uh, I've heard some truckers say that some of their compatriots actually watch movies in the, in the cab. Uh, well, they're making long hauls like this. Uh, you know, videos on their on their piece on their laptops, etc., like this. How do you how do you police something like that? How do you? Uh, I mean, it's it's one thing to say don't do it, but I mean, you've got to do something mm-hmm. for the people that are are the perpetual abusers of it. A hundred percent. And here's what the good companies are doing with that. First of all, the the, the TV watching just wouldn't happen. Uh, how? Why? Because there's monitoring systems. Trucks, modern-day trucks in modern-day fleets are high-tech IT pieces of machinery. So what does a trucking company do? They monitor the braking systems. So hard-braking applications. Hard-braking applications can take place for a number of, of reasons. But sometimes it's for falling too close, aggressive driving, distracted driving. So... When a trucking company monitors that and you have a driver who's conducting that type of behavior, what they do is they develop a training program, a management program, where over a period of time, if that driver doesn't improve, one of two things can happen. They're dismissed or there are monitoring systems such as uh, forward-looking cameras to to, uh, observe driver behavior inside the cab, and they're given that option. There's less intrusive ways now, uh, technology coming in that monitors drivers' eyes, their location, et cetera, that would deal with distracted driving. So there are, eyes, there are eyes on those drivers then? Absolutely. And that technology is coming. Uh, whether it has to be video-based or uh, other types of technology, you know, videos do uh, introduce some human resource challenges. Uh, obviously, other less intrusive technology is becoming available, but I can tell you the good fleets are managing it. But you rightfully say some people are doing this. Well, I can tell you where they are. They're at the fleets that we're are working for that you and I talked about earlier in our conversation. That nonsense should never happen, ever. And in good fleets, it's not tolerated. But there are fleets that it is. But i got to also add to the one comment. Who is giving those fleets business? You know, good customers that move product, they, want, they have a very excellent, they got an excellent relationship with their drivers and the companies. They know how to handle the freight. They know the company policies with regards to safety and training. Not all customers are doing that. So the one thing I would put out to your listenership, those who are involved in manufacturing or use the services of trucking, How well do you know your trucking company? How well do you know that your trucking company is putting safety job one? Because at the end of the day, why are those unsafe trucks on the road? Because someone decided to give them business. And that's an issue, a bigger societal issue, no different than what we have talked about, though, as society about environment. We all say we've got to reduce our 
our carbon footprint, whether that's through transportation means or other means, and that's become a societal de- uh, a debate. Well, I don't think it's a debate. We need to do it. Uh, what should be talked about now in the supply chain is, how am I moving my freight? Is it safe or an unsafe way? And I think that's an important conversation that needs to happen in the supply chain. Stephen, what about the drivers themselves? I want to talk about a couple of things again that I've heard uh, from people in the industry, some who wanted to speak anonymously because they're concerned about ramifications, but I, I think it's got to be put on the table. Uh, the, the suggestion is, is that it's more and more difficult for some of the companies now to actually find qualified drivers uh, because of family obligations, etc. There are some who just don't want to do long hauls anymore. So you've got fewer drivers driving longer, which is causing fatigue, which is causing all sorts of other problems. And, and, of course, once you're fatigued, then you start looking for solutions, and that can be, uh, can be uh, uh, you know, any number of, you know, medicinal things to try to stay awake, et cetera, like this. But it all comes down, again, to overwork. Is that a problem in the industry now? Well, I think let, let's back up to the original point that you brought up about the problem of finding qualified drivers and then companies managing new drivers into their fleet along with fatigue management and hours of service. So let's start first with uh, putting good drivers behind the wheel, which we just talked about. Good companies have programs, whether they're training programs, pre-screening programs. Safe drivers get behind the wheel. Unsafe drivers don't get hired. Now we'll deal with the second part that you raised about fatigue. The Again, good trucking companies follow hours of service. There's rules. There's audits and there's on-road inspections. They follow the rules. Not everyone does. So what have we wanted to deal with this? Electronic logging devices that will stop all of that nonsense. With paper logbooks, obviously the ability to circumvent the rules is easier. The Ontario Trucking Association for years has lobbied for the introduction of electronic logging devices. We expect by the end of this year to hear an announcement out of Ottawa where those electronic logging devices will be mandated, uh, introduced in 2018 and mandated by 2019. That will be an excellent thing for truck safety and will deal with some of the issues you just raised. We're a little short on time. i got to ask you, though, do you feel that, that new truckers, people new to the industry, are getting sufficient training? I mean, I had one guy tell me who's been in the business for a number of years that said some of these newer drivers says they don't even get highway driving. You know, he says, yeah, they're trained, but they're trained driving around the city, and then all of a sudden, okay, here's your rig. Uh, you're going from Toronto Oak to, uh, to Calgary now, uh, and that's somewhat problematic. They don't have the experience. Is, is that a concern? I wish we had another half hour to talk about that. But here's the reality. Those people do exist. They should never be put behind the wheel. Hence, we introduced mandatory entry-level training. But for good companies, and the vast majority of those people who received poor training prior to July 1 of 2018, because now we have mandatory entry-level training in this province, which was supported and developed by the Ontario Trucking Association, now what you have going forward is an opportunity to only have qualified people coming out with a license. Those that before July 1, 2018, that went to what I'll call inferior training, the better trucking companies just don't hire them. Again, where do they gravitate towards? Towards the lesser companies. And that is part and parcel of the challenge and the issue with regards to enforcement to make sure those lesser companies 
these types of issues are dealt with. And the last part of it, obviously, with newer drivers, when we talk about technology like driver assist programs, advanced braking, lane departure, uh, mandatory entry-level training will make our drivers better, our newer drivers better, and technology will help that as well. Uh, always a fascinating discussion, very important, obviously, given the importance of trucking and uh, the number of people on our roadways. Stephen, thank you so much for the, the work that you're doing on this, and thanks so much for the time today. Greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to share our story with your listenership. Okay, we'll stay in touch. Thanks again. Stephen Laskowski, uh, Ontario Trucking Association. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.